Hi there and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr Todd Fraser. The management of vasoplegic shock has relied almost solely on adrenergic agents, with a little help from vasopressin, for the last few decades. Recent papers, though, suggest that angiotensin II may indeed join our armoury in years to come. Professor Ronaldo Belomo from Melbourne's Austin Hospital Group joins me on the podcast today to discuss his recent post-hoc analysis of the ATHOS-2 trial to explore potential benefits of angiotensin II in shocked patients requiring renal replacement therapy. Ronaldo, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. Pleasure, um, as usual. Before we start, Ronaldo, do you have any disclosures related to this paper that you'd like um, to share? I, I don't have any disclosures other than that I've collaborated with the company La Jolla who make angiotensin II for quite some time and uh, will continue to do that and we are forging ahead for uh, the conduct of other trials and it's likely that I will be in a consultative capacity with this company. So the the premise of this study was based on the ATHOS-2 trial. For the people who aren't familiar listening to this, can you just remind us briefly about the ATHOS-2 trial? So the ATHOS trial was uh, dedicated to trying to understand uh, whether uh, angiotensin II um, would be able to modify blood pressure differently from placebo in people that were already on significant doses of vasopressor drugs, um, namely a high-dose norepinephrine infusion, uh, and in about 70% of patients, the additional infusion of vasopressin with a norepinephrine infusion at high doses so that... Uh, some people might argue that we're already on maximal therapy and you're still not achieving the desired target of blood pressure and it's unclear whether adding anything else would be able to modify the blood pressure. And uh, the trial assessed whether this agent, angiotensin II, would yet be able to get your blood pressure up even in that setting. And that was with agreement with the FDA... Uh, who described or defined what the uh, necessary performance characteristics would be for angiotensin II to be marketed and accepted as a vasopressor drug. Uh, this is not to save lives. Uh, it is simply to define that this drug can do what the other drugs on the market are believed to do, which is to increase blood pressure in a vasodilated uh, shock state. Right. And what did that trial show? What were the results? It found that angiotensin II indeed can uh, deliver a significant uh, improvement in blood pressure compared to placebo um, with about 70% of patients randomised to angiotensin II having a targeted uh, increase in blood pressure as desired by the clinicians and as defined by the FDA for a period of time is a greater than 10 millimeters of mercury increase in blood pressure and sustained for at least three hours. Uh, on the other hand, with the placebo, that effect was uh, in the 20% range. So this is a, a clear difference with uh, a massive level of significance and uh, clearly uh, defined that angiotensin II is an effective drug in the setting of vasodilatory high cardiac output shock 
that until that time had been refractory to support with uh, other agents. Right. And for those who aren't familiar with the drug itself, yeah. can you tell us a bit about the pharmacology, how it's administered? So, yeah, so angiotensin 2 is a hormone, just like yep. vasopressin and like uh, norepinephrine. Mm-hmm. It is a powerful vasoconstrictor, and people would remember from the days of physiology... It is the product of the breakdown of angiotensin 1 by the angiotensin-converting enzyme, um, which is mostly located in the lung, but also is located in, in other structures, including the kidneys. Angiotensin 1 does really not have significant vasoconstrictive properties, but angiotensin 2 does. Uh, angiotensin 1 is generated by uh, the breakdown of angiotensinogen, which is uh, triggered in terms of production by the release of renin, in the kidney situations of hypotension, and this is a normal physiological stability mechanism which is part of human physiology. Uh, and uh, angiotensin 2 had been previously used as a drug uh, in situations of low blood pressure. There is a whole literature over the last uh, 40, 50 years mostly uh, anecdotal, um, and uh, some of it for physiological studies in human beings to try and understand the physiology of angiotensin 2 and the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. Um, But one of the difficulties had been the production of human-grade angiotensin 2 that can have a significant shelf life and be delivered and distributed like a drug. And this was one of the new things about this trial that it was possible for the manufacturers to make an angiotensin 2 which could be delivered, distributed, preserved and had a shelf life that made it possible for it to be used and uh, therefore continuously infused at a concentration that was set as part of the trial in the nanograms uh, or so per minute and it was then adjusted to blood pressure the way you would adjust adjust. Uh, norepinephrine, the way you would adjust uh, vasopressin. So, and so it has a similar sort of response characteristics to. So yeah, it has similar response characteristics. Uh, so it is a vasoconstrictor. Um, it has really minimal effects on cardiac output. Uh, it appears to have an effect on heart rate and to increase it to a degree, possibly because of a synergistic effect with norepinephrine, possibly because it. Uh, is a sympathetic effect sensitizer, um, but really broadly it's a very powerful vasoconstrictor. And uh, different vasoconstrictive substances appear to have different distribution of receptors. So that, for example, vasopressin has lots of receptors in the gastrointestinal system, so it's very powerful. It's planktonic vasoconstrictor. Noradrenaline is a very powerful um, Vasoconstrictor of the muscular and skin vasculature, and and angiotensin two is a very powerful vasoconstrictor of multiple territories, but in particularly the renal territory, and so it acts at the efferent arteriole. And if you give angiotensin two in uh, animal models, you can beautifully demonstrate that there is a significant increase in uh, renal vascular resistance which appears to be mostly located in the efferent arteriole, and it has the effect of increasing pressure within the glomerulus 
so that it might both simultaneously decrease renal blood flow, increase renal vascular resistance, but not decrease glomerular filtration rate because the effect is after the glomerulus. So this most recent paper uh, focuses on patients who had renal failure at randomization requiring renal replacement therapy. In the introduction to that paper, it mentions that the outcomes for these patients are significantly worse, those patients in um, vasodilatory shock with renal failure. What do we know about this problem and, and how bad it is? So, you know, quite a significant percentage of people that have got vasodilatory shock have accompanying acute kidney injury, which is severe and requires renal replacement therapy. It's usually of the order of 30-40% of patients. Mm-hmm. This is a group of patients that uh, epidemiologically have been defined as having a high risk of mortality, um, probably of the order of about 50%. So they're a unique group of people, very high risk. So there isn't just vasodilatory shock, but a significant renal uh, failure. And in these patients, the management is more complex because you need to have renal replacement therapy. That's got its own challenges. And so they're a very high risk population, and no one's been able to find an intervention that changes the outcome of these patients. Uh, All the care that we have is supportive to this stage. So they're a very uh, significant group. They are significant in number. They are significant in their clinical challenges, and they are significant in their mortality. So it's a real target group for any intervention. But for angiotensin II, it was a particular target group because of the experimental data in large animals that if you give angiotensin II, you might be able to improve the glomerular filtration rate by changing the pressure inside the glomerulus through efferent arteriolar vasoconstriction. And there is experimental data showing that when there is septic vasodilatory shock, there is probably a degree of efferent arteriolar vasodilatation, which in turn decreases the pressure inside the glomerulus, which in turn decreases glomerular filtration rate, which in turn leads to acute kidney injury. If this was true in human beings, as it appears to be true in animals, then it would make sense to give angiotensin II and vasoconstrict the efferent arterial back to normal and thereby increase the pressure on the glomerulus and thereby increase glomerular filtration rate and thereby increase the chance that people would recover or improve in terms of their renal function. So that was the logic of this kind of intervention in... uh, and in this kind of particular subgroup analysis, uh, because of all the experimental data, all the physiological data, and all that we know about the unique characteristics of angiotensin II, that's why we wanted to look at that particular population. So that was the inevitable question, wasn't it? Is, is it just being able to uh, elevate the mean arterial pressure and therefore drive renal perfusion sort of globally, or is there effects at the kidneys that would be particularly helpful? So, you know, it's really difficult to distinguish between the two, of course, um, because they're happening simultaneously. And one would have to conduct trials where you randomize patients with vasodilatory shock to achieve a particular blood pressure with norepinephrine versus a particular blood pressure mostly or almost essentially with angiotensin II. We're quite a way away from looking at that. Uh, Angiotensin II is now coming on top of norepinephrine and in about 70% of patients, vasopressin. So it's coming in the third kit on the block uh, as a rescue medication 
in a situation where clinicians feel that they're not able to achieve their target blood pressure management due to the severe degree of vasodilatation. Whether we will be in 10 years' time in a world where angiotensin II is actually the number one uh, vasopressor agent for vasodilatory shock, I cannot say. We, we don't know. Uh, but I think, uh, and that's always uh, really difficult to prove, but I think, and that's just my opinion, that the availability of vasopressin, angiotensin II, and uh, norepinephrine creates the possibility for balanced vasoconstriction, where you get, if you wish, the effect of each one of those agents without relying on just one of them and then buying into the toxicity of that agent. So you can give some uh, norepinephrine without having major cutaneous uh, and muscular vasoconstriction and digital ischemia. You can give a little bit of vasopressin without getting yourself into this splanchnic ischemia territory, and you can give a little bit of angiotensin too without relying entirely on it. And so you've got all the territories that are being vasoconstricted back to hopefully near normal vessel tone without getting the toxicity of just a single agent as the only thing you're going to use. But all of these are kind of ideas that need to be tested uh, and uh, may prove to be incorrect, uh, as the case might be. Now, that uh, group of patients with vasodilatory shock and renal failure, most of those, I assume, would be sepsis, but there are other potential causes. That is correct. So most of the patients, about 70-80% of these patients were septic, Mm -hmm. But the rest were uh, inflammatory uh, vasodilatory states, either associated with pancreatitis uh, or other inflammatory responses, for example, to prolonged cardiac surgery with a high cardiac output and post-cardiopulmonary bypass vasoplegia. Mm-hmm. So there was a, a spectrum of conditions. And we reasoned uh, that the mechanisms, as best as we can understand it, are likely to be similar, whether they... Inflammation is induced by um, pathogens and their molecular patterns or whether it's induced by tissue damage. The mechanism of vasodilatation is similar, and so the mechanism of vasoconstriction uh, ought to be similar. The pathology there is interesting, though. It's not just about ischemia, is it? There's, in, in, for example, sepsis, there's a number of different processes going on that could potentially injure the kidney that are independent of blood flow. Absolutely right. And, you know, I think that it's very difficult to study the kidney. It's a black box in many ways, and it's really one of the organs that we can only study very indirectly. Um, we cannot measure renal blood flow continuously in man. We cannot measure microvascular flow in man. We cannot measure medullary or cortical flow in the kidney. So to draw conclusions that there is ischemia to the kidney in the setting of vasodilatory shock is only theoretical, uh, not practically confirmed. Mm-hmm. Uh, animal models show contradictory findings. There are animal models that show that you can develop acute kidney injury in the setting of increased renal blood flow, and that's kind of tricky. They show that there is potential maldistribution within the kidney, and there may be shunting within the mm-hmm. kidney, so it's very complex, and our ability to really understand the pathophysiology of acute kidney injury is limited. And the data that we have to guide us in our theoretical understanding of what's going on are flawed 
difficult to interpret, not robust, uh, and uh, accordingly our actions to protect the kidney are not evidence-based. So I guess we've kept the audience waiting long enough. What were the results of your analysis? So the results of this uh, analysis were that uh, in this particular group of people, um, there was a real benefit of being allocated to angiotensin 2 on top of the other vasoconstrictive agents versus being allocated to placebo in terms not only of survival, but in terms of time to coming off renal replacement therapy in the first week of treatment. Uh, this is, um, of course, a, a post hoc analysis, so it is uh, one that lacks the robustness and the uh, scientific value of a specific directed randomization of this group uh, with an a priori hypothesis that it would work, but it fits into uh, all of the things that we know about angiotensin 2 in vasodilatory models of acute kidney injury in large animals. So it is biologically plausible and it is physiologically plausible that what we saw in this post hoc study is real as opposed to a chance finding due to a randomly selected group of patients with a bit of luck on the side of the drug. Uh, whether this is really true obviously requires more robust testing, but it just fits into all our understanding of angiotensin II physiology. And in that sense, it is more interesting than other post hoc analyses of large trials because it was targeted and based on what we knew about experimental information. And so not only did they get hemodynamic benefits from the infusion, but they had some renal outcomes. That's right. There's some renal outcomes and and possibly survival outcomes. Uh, So renal survival, if you wish, or renal recovery uh, was accelerated in this group of patients and uh, possibly their actual survival to hospital discharge was greater with angiotensin II. We must remember that this is a small group of people. It's not a large cohort. uh, And so... This could be a, a type 1 error where we found something that was just there by chance and it's not, not true. But, as I said, it fits into other patterns of information that we have about angiotensin 2. So it makes sense. So crystal balling for a moment is mentioned 10 years from now. Where do you see it? Is it going to be one of those balanced solutions? Is it something that we're going to be bringing into uh, into practice earlier in a patient's uh, deterioration? What do you think will happen? So, you know, the, the journeys of new interventions uh, typically takes a long time. Mm. Uh, and where they're going to be positioned in the armamentarium of intensive care medicine in the next uh, 10, 15, 20 years is really impossible to know. But that's the kind of time horizon we're talking about. And nonetheless, I think people are already using it uh, um, in all sorts of situations, uh, and uh, I think we will build up um, a cache of uh, series, case series, where angiotensin is being given to either confirm or refute these findings. I think we will build up um, small studies comparing angiotensin II as the first agent or the second agent mm. after norepinephrine instead of vasopressin. Uh, again, small comparative studies of that kind. 
And uh, I am aware that the European Medicines uh, Agency has requested additional uh, randomized controlled trials, and my understanding is that an additional trial is being planned for and probably uh, likely is likely to start uh, either late this year or early next year, and that it might be targeted uh, in looking at angiotensin II in this very population where the postdoc analysis shows a unique benefit. So I think we'll see more data coming through, I'm sure, in the next uh, uh, year or two. Uh, and some of it will be trial, double-blind, randomized, controlled data. Some of it will be case series. Some, will be, some of that will be unblinded pilot work with angiotensin moving up the, uh, the ladder, if you wish, and becoming the second agent. Uh, maybe in two or three years it might become the first agent. We'll just have to wait and see. Uh, but it's clearly opened the door uh, to studying this agent. And uh, I think given the dramatic effect that it has on blood pressure, given the importance of blood pressure in the management of people with shock, uh, this is going to be um, a source of multiple investigations. I, I will be amazed if, if we don't have... Uh, 50, 60, 70 papers uh, around angiotensin II in the next uh, five to seven years. But where it's going to be positioned, impossible to know. It'll be interesting to find out. Renato Belomo, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. A pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash eyecriticalcare for more information. For the Eye Critical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Todd Fraser. Todd Fraser, MD, is an intensive care and retrieval medicine physician from the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, Australia. He is a staff specialist at Nusa Hospital and is the founder of Osler Technology, a clinical certification and training system. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Speak with a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org slash membership for more information. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.